Welcome to the Cadre Journal. I'm Joseph. This is Samuel. And today we're really excited to have Professor Gabriel Rockhill joining us. Samuel, if you want to introduce Professor Rockhill and then we can go into the questions. Yeah, so as Joseph said, we're with Gabriel Rockhill. He's the director and founder of the Critical Theory Workshop uh, and a professor of philosophy at Villanova University. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So to begin with, we want to kind of foreground this discussion with the broader context of why we're interested in this and why we're interviewing you specifically after your article on the Frankfurt School on Anti-Communism came out. And I think it's to note that we're students and we engage generally with people who are learning critical theory or leftist theory. And reading the article, it was it was really stark to be reminded of the constant instances where we're presented this work as nothing more than theory. I had a quote that I kind of wanted to launch off with, um, not from your work, but from a different work. Um, it was a quote by Jurgen Kral, who was a Theodore Adorno's PhD student, and he was one of the theoreticians in the student resistance uh, during the years of, of, of unrest at, the, at Frankfurt University. And he had this quote that I was reading that kind of wanted me to start off with and kind of launch into what we're interested in, where he wrote, six months ago, when we were besieging the Council of Frankfurt University, the only professor who came to the student sit-in was Professor Adorno. He was overwhelmed with ovations. He made straight for the microphone, and just as he reached it, he ducked past and shot into the philosophy seminar. In short, once again, on the threshold of practice, he retreated into theory. This quote, first of all, being written by a student and someone who's actively involved in the politics of the moment and of the movement he's engaged in, commenting on his professor's betrayal of active engagement with politics is kind of the reason we're here discussing this, because I think as students, we've been introduced to critical theory, the Frankfurt School from a very depoliticized, especially de-radicalized perspective. And the perspective that you introduced in your article is also to note the specific instances of anti-communism, of compatibility of the Frankfurt School. And we wanted to just begin with how this creates a condition where in which our pedagogy of these theoreticians becomes one that is expressly unpolitical and at, at worst actually anti-communist discouraging any kind of anti-colonial liberatory politics so that's our, our place to begin why are we even discussing this and what are the aftermath effects of having taught and introduced the frankfurt school in this manner throughout academia for the past 60 years yeah, it's a great starting point. I think that one of the ways of framing my approach, at least to the Frankfurt School, is by resituating these books and authors, these cultural products within the larger system that has produced and promoted them, which is a kind of inversion of how we're usually thought to think of commodities, where commodities are simply there and we read them or we engage with them, we buy them um, because it's what's on offer. The question I'm raising is, well, why is that what's on offer. Why is it that when I was a student and I became interested in Marxism, people immediately pointed me to Adorno and Marcuse, as opposed to Dominico Lasordo, Michael Parenti, Walter Rodney, or lots of other figures one could think of. And in my own investigations, what I began to kind of unpack is the extent to which there is a global theory industry uh, not unlike what Adorno and Horkheimer talk about when they diagnose the culture industry, but if you know their writings on the culture industry, they're mainly kind of looking at the forms of mass entertainment 
and not taking into consideration the way in which high culture, including theory and the intellectual world itself is part of an industrial mechanism. And so if we actually look at the deeper history of the global theory industry as it's kind of developed since at least World War II and has origins, of course, before that, what you see is within the Western world, a promotion of certain forms of kind of radical chic critique that traffic in gestural politics and symbolic politics, but lack any real political substance. And moreover, that also engage in various forms of obscurantism and discursive pyrotechnics, so really fancy words and hyphens and italics and references to Hegel, Heidegger, et cetera, that kind of lose the audience, particularly the young audience, who is often then convinced that, well, there must be some type of magical charm to these texts because I surely don't understand them, but all the professors and everyone else in the room seems to uh, have a lot of admiration for them. So bringing that all together, I would say, and this is of course a reference to the work of Karl Marx, that these works have a kind of cultural commodity fetishism that makes it such that we are presented them as commodities that are actually detached from the entire system of social relations that produced them in the first place, that made them circulate, and that preempted or determined to a certain extent their reception, um, because we're supposed to receive them in awe as kind of canonical works. And so one way of, I guess, introducing my work in that regard is that it's a materialist analysis of this cultural commodity fetishism, an attempt to understand, well, where did these commodities come from? Why are they being promoted, et cetera? And this, of course, then leads to the larger political stakes. And I'm sure we're going to get into this in greater detail. But just one element that is really important is that the United States in particular, that, you know, the imperial powers uh, in Europe, in the United States, as well as their intelligence services in particular, were very interested in dividing and conquering the left. And in order to do that, they distinguished between the non-compatible left, which was the communist left, because the communist left actually wanted to change the extant socioeconomic system, and the compatible left, or what they sometimes refer to as the respectable left. And the respectable left is the left that is fine with capitalism and with imperialism. And so one remarkably consistent feature of so much of a radical chic critique that is put forth in the global theory industry is their rejection, not of communism as an idea or as a concept or as a discourse. And I'd be happy to talk about figures like Zizek, Vajiu and others, uh, Derrida for that matter, et cetera. Um, but what they share is a rejection of actually existing socialism. So communism is fine as an idea, as a concept, as a discourse, but as soon as real people are making significant changes to the material world, then this becomes abhorrent and unacceptable and unpalatable. And so the intelligence services, the Central Intelligence Agency, MI6, uh, lots of different agencies that are involved in global propaganda have invested their resources that are extensive, very extensive, in fact, unlimited in certain instances, in shoring up the compatible left and in drowning in mythology, basically, the uh, non the communist left or the incompatible left. Uh, and maybe just coming full circle, one of the other quotes that I love by um, Jan Sogen Kahl, who was, of course, one of Adorno's PhD students, 
is that when he was arrested at the behest of Adorno, he uh, referred to the critical theorists as uh, or shit critical theorists, right? That basically they were full of shit. And they were full of shit because they were talking as if they wanted a radical critique of society. But as soon as the students organized along anti-imperialist lines and anti-capitalist lines and did something about it, occupying buildings on the university campus, then Adorno showed his true colors and he lined up with the powers that be. And he did this systematically, moreover, across his career. We have learned a lot about, um, you know, the actual material shortcomings of Adorno in terms of like student activism and stuff like that. So, you know, we agree he is full of shit, but how does that come through in his actual theory? Maybe there's this tendency to be like, okay, let's separate the person from the ideas. So how can we see, you know, his class position and his real motivations bleed through into what he's actually writing? Yeah, I, first of all, I would say that I reject the separation of person and ideas because it's based on an idealist postulate that's very widespread in the bourgeois humanities. It's the idea that you could have, you know, a person that lives and acts on the one hand and then the purity of the spirit of their mind on the other. Uh, you know, until proven wrong, I take it that there are not minds in vacuums and that all minds are embodied in actual reality. And so if we look at the reality of an embodied person like someone like Adorno, you find both in his practice and in his theory a really not only resolute, but I would say rabid anti-communism, like frothing at the mouth kind of anti-communism and a rejection of uh, the Soviet Union, of China, um, tacit at least support for the war in Vietnam insofar as his closest uh, collaborator and uh, close friend Max Horkheimer expressed his, his complete support for the U.S. intervention in Vietnam. And Adorno didn't then, you know, yell out in opposition and say, no, we have to actually be on the side that someone like Herbert Marcuse, who's also in their circles, was on. On the contrary, he said we shouldn't lose sleep over Vietnam. And so his practical political positions, there's another one that's quite significant, and that is the uh, intervention on the part of the Brits, the French, and the Israelis in the Suez Canal in Egypt in 1956, where Adorno and Horkheimer lined up and said that, well, Nasser, who was an anti-colonial leader, of course, in Egypt at that point in time, is nothing more than a fascist chieftain. This is a quote from the way in which they describe him, who is following the marching orders of the Soviet Union and of Moscow. And so across the board, any time that Adorno, not only in his public statements, but also in his private correspondence, I found no indication whatsoever that he would be in support of socialism in any extant form, so any materialized form. On the contrary, he proffers what I call in the article that we began by discussing ABS theory, which, of course, in the reference to crawl, we can do this orally better than in writing, but it's ABS theory. It's anything but socialism, which is, of course, a BS theory because it ultimately lines up on the exact same position that Margaret Thatcher took, and that is another acronym, TINA, there is no alternative. And so in spite of all of the melancholic despair expressed by Adorno over the state of consumer society and capitalism, at the end of the day, 
you would be hard pressed to find any instance in his life or work in which he says that, well, there's an alternative to these really horrible things. And that alternative is actually existing socialism or the socialist project in some sort. Instead, at best, you have a kind of appeal to utopian ideals, to uh, promissory notes for the future and other such things. So he really manifests the beating heart of the compatible left. And that is gestural politics and symbolic politics that sound radical, but a very clear opposition to any form of people power and a really profound form of social chauvinism. Uh, social chauvinism is a term that's not widely used today, but was very widely used in Marxist circles in the early 20th century to refer to those people who were so enamored with their own society and their own culture that they could not see beyond it. And so Adorno was blind to the impacts of imperialism because he himself in the positions that he occupied in the imperialist core benefited from them. And so he was well positioned, I guess, to turn a blind eye to that imperialism and and basically um, embrace a social chauvinistic uh, position, much like much uh, many of the other members or at least leading luminaries of the Western left or Western Marxism. I'm really glad you brought up the article about Nasser because it's something that I had wanted to bring up as well. Um, first of all, that quote that you mentioned, it reeks of, of Orientalism. It reeks of, I think, what Emmanuel Wallerstein has written about with respect to European universalism as a kind of justification for interventionism and the rhetoric of power. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about it specifically because it's so conflicting. Like when you listen to that quote where he's very openly in favor of the intervention against Nasser, it seems to contradict his other quotes and, and assertions that he's somewhat apolitical. He doesn't like practical politics. He's neutral on other questions. Um, and of course, at the same time, Western Marxists, I, I think to kind of ground that within the broader Western Marxist rejection of the, the Soviet uh, incursion into Hungary um, and Czechoslovakia, that there was so much outrage over that. Um, and then by, by contradiction, there was very little outrage against the, the French and British uh, colonial actions in Egypt. So I think we all understand the reason for that. It's very clearly, as you mentioned, the product of, of a European point of view. And I, I want to situate that within a broader discussion around the extent to which Western Marxism as such being basically Euro-Marxism, Euro-Communism, all of that kind of Eurocentric uh, bias within those strains of, of pro-imperial, as we've talked about on, on our show before, a pro-imperialist left, how this very much was able to intertwine within, as you described, the melancholic, apolitical, neutral, and, and really inert, facile politics of the Frankfurt School that ultimately said, anti-colonial, anti-imperial politics are, it's too much, you know, we need to actually just sit back and observe the world and write about it rather than actually go and, and get our feet muddy in any capacity. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between the history of the Western left and social chauvinism is a deep historical relationship that really goes back to the major split in the world communist movement between the second and third international and to Lenin's very insightful critiques of the Second International for uh, succumbing to social chauvinism. And one of the key elements that Lenin foregrounds that I think is really important for us to understand for the more general kind of 
diagnosis of the Western left kind of post-Lenin that we're talking about is that there's a reason for that social chauvinism. And the reason is the deep history of imperialism. And so just as the Second International um, basically lined up on a pro-imperialist project uh, because of the ways in which colonialism was through a whole series of mechanisms, making the life of the working class within the capitalist core, uh, positioning it at a kind of superior level economically to the global working class. This meant that there was a there were elements from the economic base that was driving that ideology, meaning that in looking back on it, given, I think, Lenin's insightful analysis, we should actually expect that to have happened, meaning that the Western left is a left that grew up within the capitalist core. And in the capitalist core, you have the wages of colonialism, the kind of labor aristocracy and all the profiteering of the imperialist expansion out from the capitalist core. And so the working class within Europe and the United States, as well as the you know, professional managerial class in these areas had a very material relationship to imperialism. And it shouldn't be then surprising that so many of them lined up and took a position in which they defended the superiority of the West, uh, embraced social chauvinism, basically accepted Western imperialism, because all of those things were basically benefiting them materially. And so in that regard, Lenin's critique of the Second International, I think, needs to be redeployed in relationship to the Western left in the latter part of the 20th and the early part of the 21st century. Because if you look at, if it be French theory, German style critical theory, or other manifestations of so-called so critique within the contemporary Western academy, you could talk about Afro-pessimism, you could talk about liberal queer theory, you could bring in a lot of references in this regard. One thing that's really remarkable is that this social chauvinism is still very, very widespread. And there's a facile and very thin and superficial critique of Eurocentrism that consists in saying, well, we need voices from elsewhere. We need to bring in you know, people who speak differently and things like this. But the authors who are integrated into the capitalist core tend to be those that actually line up both intellectually and politically with the Western left. So you can look at figures like Dussel, you could look at figures like Spivak, you could look at uh, many of those who have been kind of elevated within the Western core today and recognize that the same basic pattern is operative, right? And so in that regard, there's a, there's a, a broader, I think, historical economic analysis that is necessary to understand some of the mechanisms that are operative. And to come to the core of your question, then one of the things that you see very clearly within this broad Western left is a politics of melancholia, a politics of despair. And I think that this affective ideology is so important because it is the kind of beating heart, if you will, of ABS theory. And that consists in recognizing and to their credit, people like Adorno and Horkheimer do recognize this, that capitalism is a force of evil in the world because it exploits people, it engages in imperialism, it engages in various forms of oppression, etc. 
those negative aspects of the Western left, so the critical aspects where they say that capitalism is bad, consumer society is bad, et cetera, uh, have often been then linked to a critique of any possible positive project, right? And so what you have is a diagnosis of the problems without an elucidation of the cure. And if we could just allow ourselves a brief analogy or comparison, imagine going to a doctor and the doctor saying to you, you know, you're really sick and I'm gonna describe this illness in great nuanced detail so that you understand just how sick you are. And there's this medication that we have that people have used elsewhere to solve this illness. But the last thing that you could possibly do is take that medication because it's even worse than the illness that you have, right? And so what they put forth is this really melancholic, dystopian worldview in which everything is horrible, but the alternative is much, much worse. And so you have an entire industry that is basically based on critique, not revolutionary transformation. And that's the kind of bread and butter of the Western left. And again, we could look at just about anyone, unfortunately. It's unfortunate how consistent this orientation is. Uh, Zizek lining up on NATO and supporting the war in Ukraine. You could look at Habermas basically doing the same in a recent um, intervention. Uh, you know, the list goes on as far as like really concrete and specific positions that members of the Western left, or at least the most visible members of the Western left have taken that basically communicate the most fundamental line of demarcation and ideological struggle. And that is the demarcation to come back to what we were talking about before between the compatible left and the non-compatible left. And it's precisely for this reason, when you see the bigger picture, it actually makes perfect sense because someone like Zizek or Bedieu or Adorno or these figures, they're global superstars, right? Uh, they're referred to by Fortune magazine as, you know, Zizek is one of the top 100 thinkers in, of the 20th century. Capitalist, you know, publications like this that are promoting that type of work are not doing it in ignorance. They're doing it because they're fully aware that it is fantastic to promote the idea that critique is acceptable as long as it preserves the border that keeps it from true social transformation. And that's what thinkers end up doing, unfortunately, more or less across the board. No, I think what we're really getting at here is that all of these theorists are basically operating from the same baseline uh, imperialist ideology that's, um, you know, as you say in your writings, it's like intertwined with real life, like material life processes. Um, those being, you know, imperialism and, you know, the wages of, of colonialism. So I think to get at this question a little bit more, I'd like you to sort of explain what you mean by ideology and, you know, how that's intertwined with sense-making, uh, just so we can look at this question from a different angle. I've been working with Jennifer Ponce de Leon on what we refer to as a compositional model of ideology. And this is, of course, Unlike the theorists that I just mentioned who love to put forth their theories as radically new uh, and basically copyright them and brand them as if it was novel thinking, the thinking that I've been doing with, with Jennifer Ponce de Leon is rooted very deeply in the historical materialist tradition and dedicated to collective knowledge production. Um, so everything that I'm going to say is uh, simply an attempt to 
both pick up on and contribute to a collective tradition, not to copyright ideas in this facile sense that is often done within the global theory industry. And so the compositional model of ideology uh, outlines the extent to which ideology is not just about a system of ideas. It is instead a total experiential apparatus that is uh, imposed upon subjects by a particular social and economic world. So one is ideologically configured, not only in the way one thinks, but also in one's affects, so one's feelings and uh, one's sensibilities, in one's perceptions of the world, the things we see or the things we do not see, the things we hear and do not hear, also in one's desires, uh, in one's aspirations, and so the compositional model of ideology is just trying to flesh out a broader understanding of ideology as a total sense-making mechanism. And it's the means by which a given society formats individual subjects in every aspect of their existence. In this regard, uh, one of the things, and here I'll put my own cards on the table because I have definitely been ideologically composed by the global theory industry. I mean, this is how I came up as a student. I went and studied with Derrida and Bedieu and figures like this in France because it was put forth as the most radical theory on offer. And it took me a long time to figure out what was actually going on. And honestly, a lot of that had to do with the affective ideology that carries a lot of the Western left because I remember the sexy books and the uh, sophisticated vocabulary and the kind of uh, very chic settings within which, if it be art galleries or you know performance centers or seminar rooms or things like this, that all of this theory was presented within. And so part of the work that I've been doing with Jennifer on ideology is trying to identify how ideology critique then cannot simply be a critique of ideas. You can't simply say, well, you're wrong about it. These are the right ideas. That's what ideology critique is. No, ideology critique has to also engage at an affective level, at a psychological level. It has to look at how our perceptions are formatted so that everybody now in the Western world sees the Ukraine, but they don't see Yemen, for instance, or Somalia or you know, Ethiopia or other places that one could be focused on. And so that form of ideology critique then also needs to be related to the ways in which that composition is anchored in an economic base. And so one's situation in class relations tends to determine and compose one sense of the world in a very visceral and kind of um, basic sense meaning that what you experience at a daily level uh, formats your ideology, meaning do you have access to food and potable water? Uh, is your uncle in prison? Or are you, you know, going to an elite school in the Northeast uh, or teaching at an elite school in the Northeast? And that daily set of class relations very much has an impact on the way in which you perceive the world and your sense of the world it is that you're living in and how that world could potentially be changed or not changed. And so uh, there's a lot of different aspects to this, but I think that connecting it back to what we were talking about a moment ago, part of the way in which the compatible left has operated ideologically is to communicate to people at an affective level 
that certain forms of critique are acceptable because they're respectable, because they're honest, because they are rational. But other forms of analysis, such as communist analysis, is beyond the pale. And flirting with insanity, madness, um, just it, it, is, it, it tends to kind of bring up all of the specters of, of gulags and of terror and of devastation. And that that affective ideology is one of the most powerful policing mechanisms. I mean, in my own education, again, I remember the first few times where people were asking me, this is years ago, oh, what do you think about Cuba? I didn't know anything about Cuba, but I know what I felt about Cuba. I felt that it must be dictatorial, right? I mean, that there must be a really oppressive set of social relations because that was what was in the ethos. And none of the figures that I was reading Foucault and Ranciere and people like this in Bolivar, none of them were saying, no, Cuba's actually like an actually existing socialist state that we should take seriously and we shouldn't be revolted by it. And so that affective ideology really keeps certain political projects off the table and polices the left border of critique so that we just focus on what the rest of the Western left is talking about. And we accept as a given certain assumptions about the world, like China is an authoritarian capitalist country that is just to be condemned like every other, um, you know, actually existing socialist state. And so part of my own even personal ideology critique has been one of uprooting those affective reactions when I hear China or Cuba or Korea or any of these other countries. And instead saying, well, wait a minute, why don't we actually look at what's going on and get the best possible sources of information instead of simply having an affective reflex that's been programmed into me do its work of keeping me from the scientific labor of exploring actually existing socialism in a very sober and open-minded way in which you can also do it critically and point out where you think that there might be limitations and things like this, but you can do it kind of at the adult table instead of the child's table, you know, at a Thanksgiving holiday, where basically all you're encouraged to do is react by affect and kind of acting out and not have a sober assessment. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the economic base of all ideologies. We're in the process of doing a reading group right now uh, here at Cornell with, with other students around the world on Walter Rodney's decolonial Marxism. And he has a quote in there where he says that very simply put, every ideology is a class ideology, whether we want to identify it as that or not. And he's talking about that in the context of debates around uh, attempts to formulate a third option without having to commit to socialism, but also not wanting to identify with capitalism. And he ultimately says that those will always fail because there there is no alternative actually to choosing socialism as the only route out of capitalism. Um, and all of the alternatives he looks at ultimately fell back into capitalism. Uh, sort of proving his point. I want to bring that up with respect to a, a big point in your article being the Congress of Cultural Freedom, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, specifically the manner in which I think it falls in this pattern of neither Washington nor Moscow, neither Washington nor Peking, this kind of, I don't want to choose. So I end up sort of vacillating back into Washington at the end of the day, which is the case pattern, as you point out. And I think ultimately what that lends itself to, as you've been discussing, is 
the fact and class character of academia, of intellectuals themselves, still being bourgeois at the end of the day. And if if that class determines one's ideology, then it's no surprise that bourgeois ideology would be produced. And I think that's to stimulate the conversation around Walter Rodney puts forth the alternative of a guerrilla intellectual, someone who can commit class suicide against a bourgeois orientation. But as students, we're always presented with revolutionary intellectualism as an option. And academia, as you were pointing out, is always sort of pushed for left-leaning students as, you know, if you don't want to work in a capitalist industry, if you would like to advance critique of, of society, then you can go into academia. But what's frustrating is reading your article and, and all of these conversations, it's, it seems to come out that academia itself, I mean, we should be very aware that it is another type of capitalist industry, but we sort of mystify that, I think, and then are surprised when academics who present themselves as revolutionary, in the case of the Frankfurt School, as revolutionary intellectuals are co-opted by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, by the CIA. So I guess my question is, why, why should we be surprised when academia itself continues to have a class character, one that we ignore, um, but nevertheless, is, and then I guess a secondary question to that is, how do you avoid this co-optation of, of intellectualism, of attempting to be critical, um, as you were pointing out, but this critique often becomes very useful for uh, the existing imperialist or capitalist order, which can take critique very easily and turn it around and make it a weapon of the CIA or the Congress of Cultural Freedom? Great question. I'm glad that you're reading that book by Rodney, which is excellent, uh, like all of Rodney's work uh, across the board. And I think that it relates quite directly to what we were just talking about in the sense that there is an objective world of global class struggle that produces within certain strata that are situated within that class struggle, the illusion that they can subjectively tap out and be neutral, uh, be silent observers, be the kind of intellectual flies on the wall. But as you quite cogently pointed out, you can't tap out of class struggle. It is an objective reality. Or as Howard Zinn, whose politics are slightly different than Walter Rodney's, often said, you cannot be neutral on a moving train, right? And so, of course, the intellectuals that we're talking about and all of those intellectuals who feign some type of neutrality are themselves part of a class project, objectively speaking. So it doesn't actually matter what they say individually because their subjective illusions can simply mask the fact that there's objective class relations that are operative. And one of the things that's really important, I think, to understand, um, Kluska, who's a French philosopher, um, Marxist, uh, has spoken quite or written quite poignantly on this front, is that the professional managerial class, as it's been developed in the capitalist core in the latter half of the 20th and the early 21st century, occupies a really specific position. And that is a position in which they're not like the petty bourgeoisie of the early 20th century, the small shopkeepers and property owners and things like this. They, they don't kind of own means of subsistence in that sense. But instead, they occupy a position in which they operate within institutions that are controlled by those who control the means of production, the means of uh, circulation of information, et cetera, meaning the bourgeois capitalist class. While at the same time, 
there are those, and these are the ones that we're mainly talking about, because there are plenty of intellectuals who simply line up on the capitalist ruling class, right? The Samuel Huntingtons and the Fukuyamas of the world, etc. But there are others who instead want to create the impression that somehow they're serving the interests of the general population. And these are the radical recuperators, like Adorno and Horkheimer and whatnot. And what they do is it's, it's quite a kind of, uh, it's a dual movement of sorts in which they work in these institutions while making gestures towards the general population in various ways. But ultimately their social function is to recuperate the radical insurgent forces of the masses within a pro-capitalist project. And so they're kind of the political henchmen or hench people, if you will, of the capitalist ruling class. And one of the tactics that they use is their purported neutrality, right? And so I think a broader diagnosis of this class stratum of the professional managerial classes that operates within the imperialist core is really important. And that leads to uh, uh, the vocabulary that you used is the risk of being co-opted by organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom. What's actually quite interesting about the history of that organization or the Information Research Department, which is a similar organization that was run by MI6 and CIA uh, that was uh, headquartered in Great Britain, is that the co-optation suggests that, well, intellectuals were doing work and then they were kind of recuperated by these institutions. But actually, it was the opportunism of these intellectuals that coalesced quite seamlessly with the way in which these organizations themselves functioned, meaning they weren't so much co-opted as they were opportunists who benefited from the uplift of these institutions. Someone like George Orwell or uh, Raymond Aron, who's a quite famous French philosopher, at least within the European context, they had their work translated, circulated around the world. Uh, they were invited to all of these junkets. They became world famous writers because of the work of these intelligence services. And so their opportunism got the uplift of the system and the system got from them what they wanted, which was basically uh, anti-communist claptrap in very sophisticated verbiage. And so in that regard, I think that the, 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 the logic of co-optation isn't quite as operative as the logic of kind of a mutual reinforcement in which the institutional forces and the subjective forces of the intellectuals involved are kind of pushing in the same direction. The other thing that I would say is that there's also an imperialist character, right? You said it's a class character, but coming back to Walter Rodney, of course, uh, and to Domenico Lasordo and Lenin and many others, the class character of capitalism has, in at least its modern instantiations, taken the form of imperialism. And so the relationship between countries is often a, re a class relationship. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that it's not just the university occupying a class position, the universities in the United States and Europe occupy an imperial position in relationship to the rest of the world, and they vet what is acceptable from the rest of the world and what should be then promoted as a kind of form of global, global theory. And your question about how to avoid that is a really good question, right? Uh, in, in the case of Rodney, we know that he was a guerrilla intellectual. He was involved with the Rastafari movement. He was involved in so many different movements uh, in Tanzania as well. Um, as well as in Guyana. And we know now that the, it's the Guyanese state that was involved in the organization of his and the planning of his assassination. And so 
as far as you know, the intellectual work that can be done that is of a sort that would actually break with the imperatives of the institution, there is a certain amount of class suicide that's involved in that because then you don't get the uplift. You're not promoted in the kind of star industry. You're not the top hundred thinkers of Fortune magazine and other such things. Um, I think it also requires, and this is, I think, key in a way that also echoes our conversation about the Western left, is that it's not just, you know, people often think about ideology critique or intellectual work as an individual exit. Like, I'm going to figure out on my own how to be a guerrilla intellectual or how to escape ideology. I think there's a very incorrect way of thinking about it. The real goal, if you're invested in human liberation, isn't for me to get out or for like you individually to get out. It's for us to build collective power. And to build collective power, that means that intellectuals really have to be anchored in the global socialist movement. And this takes many different forms. It takes party forms, it takes union forms, it takes various forms of you know, organizations and things like this. And it also means collectively working with others in order to move the needle in various ways by building institutions and by operating in a much more collective manner. Um, this also means that we have to find ways, and again, echoing what I was just saying about Rodney, the goal is not for intellectuals to stick their necks out and get their heads chopped off. The goal should be for us to collectively build power so that we can actually intellectually and culturally contribute to a global pro project that is not the global project of the imperialist PMC, but is instead the global project of human liberation. And so we could talk more specifically, if you want, about particular tactics for doing that. You know, I'm involved in the critical theory workshop, which you mentioned, which is a you know international educational platform. And part of what we try to do is to have sober and adult conversations about actually existing socialism, so that there can be some institutional space for engaging with the work of people like Rodney, people like um, Claudia Jones, and others who are revolutionary intellectuals, right? They're not just critical theorists who are bemoaning the limits of capitalism and saying that there's no solution to them. They're people who have really concrete solutions that we need to learn from, we need to debate, discuss, but we can't do this in the abstract. All of these ideas have to be anchored in the movement. They have to be anchored in the practical organizing of the masses of humanity in a project that is a world historical project of human liberation, particularly because we're at a point in time at which there's no longer simply the risk of nuclear annihilation and of the kind of subjection of the totality of humanity to capitalist social relations, but human extinction is on the board uh, due to the ecological destruction that has been that has been perpetuated by capitalism. So the stakes could not be higher. We need to work together collectively in order to marshal all of our intellectual and cultural power in order to move this global project of human emancipation and ecological survival in the right direction. I was joking earlier, academia is the left wing of fascism. Um, but what I mean, the reason I made that joke is because <laughs> uh, I think that <laughs> I think that, you know, both what we were talking about with um, Adorno and like that milieu, as well as how like Michael Parenti talks about fascism, like a false revolution. I think it, yeah. there is this sort of falseness and this failure to break away from the material basis of the ideology of capitalism. 
So yeah, I was just wondering about the connection between those two, how they both sort of promise a way out from this horrible thing we call capitalist imperialism. I mean, the very first thing that I would say, and this overlaps a little bit with our earlier conversation, is that fascism was conceptualized in the early 20th century by Mussolini and others, but in medias race. So it was kind of as they were already doing fascism, they started to conceptualize and try to figure out what it was. But of course, it existed prior to that. And the history of colonialism is a great example of what fascism looks like in its kind of modalities of primitive accumulation. And so it depends on how expansive, if we want to have a general understanding of fascism or a more specific understanding, as people often do, because they see fascism and its European manifestations in the interwar period. And if we do simply look at that interwar period, one of the things that it's remarkable and important to understand is that the aristocracy, which still was an important class formation within the kind of long 19th century and remains so today, I mean, we just saw this with the death of the queen and whatnot, uh, had authoritarian modes of governance that it would regularly use. It was just like old school, authoritarian, brutal rule. And what happened in 1917 with the Bolsheviks, of course, is the emergence of a very unique way of seizing state power. And what the Bolsheviks did is they played the parliamentary game and they insisted on playing the parliamentary game. They were propagandizing on every front, while at the same time they ran underground organizations that were considered illegal because of the way in which Tsarist Russia operated. And that dual strategy of operating above board and then also uh, doing things somewhat uh, in the streets and on the fringes, is precisely what some of the fascists tried to recuperate in order to revitalize the authoritarian elements of capitalism, but give them a kind of new, modern, and almost adventurous kind of orientation. And so Parenti, of course, famously referred to fascism as a false revolution, which is precisely what it was in this European context, because there was an attempt to reach out to workers and in particular to the, the petty bourgeoisie, as well as the kind of lumpen proletariat, the veterans and other uh, groups like that. And to say to them, yeah, there are real problems with societies uh, that we live in, like we just saw with the, the fascist who's become prime minister of Italy. Right. Um, she points out, oh, there's a problem with the corrupt financial elite. And there are all these abstract references to the financial elite. But when you look at the history of actually existing fascism, that financial elite has often been funding the rise of these fascist forces. So there's a class project of the capitalist ruling class using the political elite that's also using them in order to gain power in this twofold way in which the Bolsheviks had gained power, both working through parliament and through, in the case of fascists, street gangs that were doing illegal activities, but the state was looking the other way. And both in the case of Mussolini and in the case of Hitler, we shouldn't forget they came to power through liberal bourgeois democracies. These were not coup d'etat. They played by the rules of the game. And in a bourgeois democracy, the basic rule of the game is you get as much funding as you can from the capitalist ruling class in order to gain electoral power. And that's precisely what, uh, that's precisely what happened. Now, its relationship to the academy would take some time to unpack, right? Because there's so many different aspects to this. But one of the uh, elements that's really important is that liberalism has never been a bulwark against fascism. 
historically, we've seen this time, and again, like the Spanish Civil War, when the United States didn't support the Republicans who were, uh, you know, advocating for the self-determination of the people, um, they didn't weigh in on the side of the fascist dictator Franco, but they just kind of let it play out, right? As a warm-up to World War II, in which they also did the same thing. They stood back and watched things unfold. And as Truman famously said, he wanted to see, he wanted basically the Nazis and the, the Russians to bleed each other dry and then intervene at the end of the war based on whoever was winning. And that is exactly what happened. And just so happens that the army, surprisingly for Truman, ended up being the one that was winning the war at that point in time. Um, so the history of the liberal intelligentsia has often been one of aiding and abetting fascism, either directly in certain instances or indirectly by not by basically lining up as the compatible left and uh, taking a position that was recalcitrant to the only known solution to fascism that humanity has found thus far, and that is socialism. Uh, we shouldn't forget that in the wake of the Great Depression, there were fascist movements in every capitalist country. And you do not have to look far in the United States or elsewhere today in our contemporary world to recognize that there's a massive resurgence of fascism that goes hand in hand with capitalist crisis and the rise of China. And so we are in a position in which we should be having very frank, open and important debates about the resurgence of fascism and how it can actually be combated combated because it can't be combated through the liberal intelligentsia. It can't be combated with liberalism. Look at what they did. They voted in, you know, Biden came into office as the last bulwark against Trump. And what's he done? A proxy war in Ukraine and a war on working class people in the United States. He's, he's basically continued the capitalist neoliberal agenda and the imperialist agenda. Right. And so if you thought that Biden, voting Biden into office was going to save us from fascism, you were sorely, sorely mistaken, because fascism, of course, has an international dimension that we always need to foreground. Maybe the last thing that I would say in this regard, because I realize that my comments are kind of touching on a number of different issues, is that the university was also stopped with Nazis in the wake of World War Two. Right. Sixteen hundred Nazi scientists, sixteen hundred. 1,600 Nazi scientists were brought to the United States in the wake of World War II, and they were given positions at leading universities. Cornell was one of them. 14 leading universities in the United States housed Nazis who were given research centers, often assistance, and they were promised nationality if their work bore fruit. And by that, that meant basically producing weapons of mass destruction and mass death. Uh, which many of them did, of course, and they went on to take uh, senior roles or occupy senior roles in NASA and in NATO, of course. And so there's a deep and dark history of the relationship between the university and not simply the liberal factions that I was talking about earlier, but just straight up Nazis and fascists. Uh, I don't really, I don't have like a formatted question, but I, I think what it's prompting in my mind is to think about the the necessary kind of nature as we were discussing before of academia you've discussed throughout the kind of uh, system of academic branding that exists like when you claim an idea and it's yours and that's something that i i find a lot um in reading about academia and talking about it is this kind of tendency towards as you know the term of knowledge production and the ability to claim certain ideas and and 
kind of create a brand on them. But I, I'm curious, as you were discussing, you know, the collective alternative to that, I'm thinking and we're thinking a lot is, you know, as we do this project and we try to learn about anti-imperialism in particular, thinking about all the the complicated exigencies of that, like what solidarity looks like on an international scale, because as you point out, it's it's necessary if we're going to fight uh, fascism, the rise of fascism, uh, to deal with and address solidarity, um, and as a, a necessary part of anti-imperialism. And I think when we think about that, knowledge does play a role in it because it's a constant back and forth between as people who grew up and were educated within the imperial core. For example, when you made that comment about Cuba earlier, I was thinking about the fact that I grew up outside of Miami and South Florida, and I was thinking about what I was told about Cuba when I was young, and it, it was not good at all. But there's a there's a kind of inversion of that process, so to speak, which is visiting those countries, learning from people who live there and are participants in the process of building socialism. And we had a separate conversation with a professor who has done a lot of work in Cuba, discussing the ways in which we can tend to sort of import our biases about these projects when we go and visit, when we, you know, come away feeling critical about this thing isn't working out, or, you know, I would, I would prefer to see things this other way. So I wonder if we can maybe talk a little bit about, I guess this is a whole issue of the fact of bringing in what you think socialism should look like and imposing it upon people who are actually doing it and saying, because these things don't match up, I choose not to support this, which I think is the the whole issue with the Frankfurt School in a lot of cases that they would like to see, you know, and that comes up with with a sort of Marxist humanism or this kind of desire to promote all of the the niceties of of a socialist imagination and none of the the kind of complicated aspects that get involved, such as the real, as you pointed out, I think is really important. The really difficult debate around what to do with the state, what to do with with political power. And those debates don't go away overnight, but they've been ongoing in countries that actually have been creating socialism. And I think uh, when we kind of go in there and, and in an attempt to perhaps learn, but come away feeling fatigued and feeling deeply cynical about socialism because of some bias we had beforehand that hasn't been the, the standard that hasn't been uh, lived up to, I think that's the number one thing that can lead people towards this inert neutrality and a kind of reversion back to, I, I believed in socialism, but then I went and saw it. I was very uh, disillusioned with what I saw. So I wonder if you can talk more about that, of what the, what the right approach to a, a solidarity or a kind of learning from actually existing socialism can look like, as opposed to the process we have of learning from capitalism to hate socialism. Yeah, that's a great question. There is such a widespread tendency to either explicitly or implicitly embrace utopian socialism within the Western left and to think of socialism in terms of this absolutely perfect system that would realize all of one's subjective goals in which racism and gender inequality and everything would just be eradicated overnight the state would disappear, et cetera. And if that doesn't happen immediately, then it is just to be condemned. And Domenico Lesordo, I think, is probably the single clearest author on this front because he foregrounds the relationship between this Western left utopian socialism on the one hand and the deeper history of a kind of messianic 
ideology that's a layover from the feudal uh, phase of um, of development, which wants everything to change all at once in this messianic manner. And what he insists on against that, and I think he's absolutely right, is that we don't, we should not approach actually existing socialism with our own subjective aspirations and our own messianic hopes. Instead, we should look at it scientifically, right? And the science of actually existing socialism, which is of course what Engels argued for, recognizes that socialism is not born by falling from sky. Socialism emerges out of profound conflicts and contradictions within a capitalist world system. Therefore, our expectations should be that those contradictions and those complications carry over, that there is a kind of long durée or a long duration to revolutionary transformation. There's not a punching a button. This isn't a Marvel fucking film, right? We're actually building a new society. As Ernesto Che Guevara said, the easiest thing about a revolution is the seizure of power. The most difficult thing is building a new society. And so if we have that in mind, a few things that I think are really important, because it relates actually to uh, a project that I've been working on, the kind of dialectics of actually existing socialism, is that we have to know that there has never been socialism set free. There's never been a socialist experiment in the world that wasn't the object of the most vicious and heinous imperialist crimes to try to destroy it and strangle the red bib babe in its crib, as Winston Churchill said about the intervention of 14 capitalist countries in the Soviet Union in 1918-1919. So we only have socialism under siege, right? This is the stage that we're at. It's the baby steps of what could be, you know, a, a more developed socialist or eventually communist project. Secondly, all of these countries in order to survive have to develop as quickly as possible because if they don't, they're going to be crushed. And we've seen that again and again, history proves it. But the level of development means that they have to take feudal societies, illiterate populations, often populations that don't even have clothes or access to potable water and make them into a society that's capable of defending itself, not just against you know, nearby countries, but against the most powerful imperialist army in the history of the world. That's an incredible, incredible task. And it's very stupid for subjects to go in individually and say to themselves, well, I, I think socialism should have been like this. Like there should be rainbow water fountains or who knows what, you know, some idea about what it should be. No, socialism is you need to develop the forces of production to such an extent that you can survive. Survival is step one of the revolution. The third thing that I would say is that you have to develop in a way that capitalist countries have never developed before. And that is that you have to develop without using colonialism as a mechanism of development, right? How did, how did Europe and the United States kind of catapult itself ahead in its development? Well, through colonialism, through land theft, through uh, super exploitation, right? So you need super development without super exploitation. That's part of the conundrum. A fourth point, and there's many others that I could go into, but I'll leave it at this, is that you inherit all of the ills of decades and centuries of capitalism. You inherit racism that is deeply, deeply entrenched, homophobia deeply entrenched, gender dynamics that are very, very deeply entrenched. 
And you cannot develop society, defend it from imperialists, do it without using colonialism and wipe out and eradicate all forms of superstition and racism and, and gender ideologies overnight. You need to recompose your entire society. Um, and that's going to take, I mean, look at capitalism, right? Capitalism has been around since, you know, depending on who you read, it has roots as far back as the Renaissance or the 17th century and has been developing for centuries, right? Uh, socialism, you know, the first successful socialist revolution was in 1917. We're only 100 years into this project. And so we should not expect to go into a society and have everything be perfect. We should expect deep contradictions and deep difficulties linked to all of the problems that I just highlighted and, and others as well. And in that regard, one of the things that we should do is learn from what's going on and learn what it's like to make a decision in those types of circumstances, not from the point of view of a professor in the global north who's, you know, the biggest stakes of what they do is they might, you know, mistype something and make a typo and have to delete it. This is very different than setting up an agricultural policy for Cuba that wouldn't be based on monocultures and that would take into account global warming and the struggle against it and other such things. So uh, in that regard, I think we have enormous things to learn from actually existing socialism. And this kind of comes back to the original point of your, uh, of, that you raised, and that is how can our anti-imperialism also be rooted in networks of solidarity? And I do think that the most important element of our anti-imperialism needs to be involvement in parties, organizations, collective structures that are mobilized for anti-imperialism, like the Answer Coalition, like uh, parties and organizations that support actually existing socialism. Um, and I would put that primary to the kind of cultural front of struggle, because one of the problems in the history of cultural Marxism and Western Marxism is the idea that, well, it's just a culture struggle, right? We can just make some new movies and write some new books and that's going to sort it out. No, class struggle is primary and the cultural element needs to always be situated in relationship to class struggle, which is the driving force of history. But in relationship to culture struggle, there's a lot that we can and should do. And part of the work that I've been involved in, which is also anti-imperialist kind of solidarity, is trying to make the work that's been invisibilized by the global theory industry visible and have it circulate in a much broader spectrum than it otherwise would so that we can learn from the intellectuals and cultural producers in places like Cuba, China, and elsewhere, instead of just you know, continue our parade of ignorance. So the book by Dominique Lasordo, uh, Western Marxism, I've been involved in helping get it translated into from Italian to English because a lot of the Lasordo books, I mean, Lasordo's an Italian thinker. So, you know, he's, um, but one dedicated to um, supporting actually existing socialism. And I've also been involved in, there's an excellent book called uh, Enemigo by Raul Antonio Capote, who's a Cuban author who worked for the CIA for years but unbeknownst to the CIA, was also working for the Cuban government. And he told an incredible tale. This is a university professor and a literary figure in Cuba who tells the incredible story of his life being recru recruited by the CIA, working on all of their dirty and horrific destabilization efforts in Cuba, and then being able to do that in such a way that he was countering them at the same time by working with the Cuban government. 
And so I've been involved with some of the comrades that I work with in hopefully um, getting that book translated into English so that people can have a firsthand account of what CIA destabilization efforts look like in Cuba, but also what the fight back looks like, right? Because we don't only want to focus on the kind of nitty gritty of the evil things that the US empire is doing around the world, but also how people are building actually existing socialism and building the, the fight back. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time. Apologies, we've gone a little bit over. Um, we wanted to finish it on two last things. One, we always ask like a kind of general question at the end of, of all interviews we do, which is related to optimism or a kind of like hope that you can have about the possibility of, of furthering this. But in this case, I'd like to specifically ask about, you know, you mentioned throughout and you've written about this and you mentioned in the interview, your own kind of intellectual journey and a kind of like process of unlearning some aspects of this. I wonder if you have any points of optimism or kind of advice perhaps for students and young people who are going through this intellectual process. And as we're, you know, attempting to do as well, not, not even trying to unlearn, but actually just trying to like set ourselves on the right path to learn in the, in the first place and try and make sure that we have the knowledge necessary. I think you've been very helpful to impart this for us about, you know, all aspects of, of collective work, of having this optimism, uh, having this belief in, in class struggle uh, predominantly. So yeah, any advice or, or any recommendations you would have? And then our last thing is just a general uh, where people can find you, where they can read your stuff. Um, and yeah, go for it. Yeah, I would say that my revolutionary optimism is rooted in two things. One is objective reality. And according to objective reality, capitalism is a self-destructive system that is destroying itself and will destroy itself. Capitalism is destined to die. And the real question is, are we going to die along with it? And so that leads me to the second element of my revolutionary optimism. And that is that there is a very palpable kind of subjective, uh, I think, transformation that I see in almost all of the young people that I interact with. Because you were born into a world, I'm almost 50 years old, so you're born into a very different world than I was born into. I was born into the world of the twilight of communist consciousness and the reign of Fukuyama and Huntington, etc., in the heart of the U.S. empire, in which you know French theory was the lingua franca of the global radical chic, and that was as good as you could get. The younger generation, one of the things that I find very exciting and in even intoxicating is that there's a very clear recognition of the stakes of class struggle because of the ecological destruction of the, the biosphere and the fact that this generation might simply not have a planet to live on, combined with the fact that people, at least a lot of the young people that I interact with, are hungry for a broader spectrum of analysis in a way that was largely excluded in my generation. Not entirely, because there were people who are a lot more politically savvy than I was uh, you know, at that point in time. Uh, and thankfully, they were kind of carrying the torch at a moment at which I was unfortunately hoodwinked by petty bourgeois opportunism and lost in the archive of, of deconstruction and other such things. And so my revolutionary optimism is also subjective in that sense, because 
all of the younger generation that I interact with is really invested in opening up the spectrum of analysis and looking at all possibilities, meaning not foreclosing the possibility of a non-compatible left, taking seriously what socialism is and what it could be, and looking at the history of struggles in such a way that there might be ways forward that are very different than uh, what we've encountered thus far uh, you know, in at least within within the U.S. context, and you see a major uptick in organized politics in the United States. There's a swelling of the ranks of the revolutionary left organizations across the board, and I think that we should continue to both encourage that, promote that, but then also fi find ways of using that for collective self-education and the collective development of the types of organizations that we need, because we're also still at a very early stage. And so while I'm optimistic, both kind of objectively and subjectively, so to speak, I also recognize that the stakes are very, very high. You have resurgent fascism around the world, the risks of World War III and nuclear devastation. And so it, with that in mind, I think that it's important for people to recognize not only that we need optimism, but we also need realism. We need to learn from what everybody's done in the past. We have to keep our people safe and we have to find ways of building power coherently and very quickly in order to leverage power in the direction of people and away from the parasites who live off of us and who use us for their profit. Uh, regarding the final question, it's a little bit more of a, of a banal question. I'm involved in a lot of different collectives and organizing endeavors. so. The Critical Theory Workshop is an educational platform that I mentioned earlier. I'm also part of the Collective for Liberation School. I do a lot of work with the Liberation Center in Philadelphia. If people uh, happen to make it this way, um, you're welcome to come down. I also work a lot with uh, my comrades at the People's Forum in New York, uh, with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, yeah, I, I do a lot of kind of work across different sectors in order to support various struggles. Also, I'm involved in various organizing endeavors in France because I spend a fair amount of time there. The PRCF is a really interesting and important political party there that's taking, I think, a very important line, not only in France, but in relationship to European politics more generally. Um, so maybe I'll just leave it at that then. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time and we really enjoyed the conversation. We, I, I think we can say we, we learned a lot. So yeah. thank you for joining us. Thank you. Really. Appreciate well, thanks it. for having me on and thanks for the work that you're doing, because it's really important to have these conversations, bring people in and kind of build the intellectual and cultural platforms where people can share these ideas, educate one another. And it's a central, central part of of the class struggle, which is also a cultural struggle. Los estudiantes, jardín de nuestra alegría, son aves que no se asustan de animal ni policía, y no le asustan las balas ni el ladrar de la jauría. Caramba y samba la cosa, que viva la astronomía. Me gustan los estudiantes que rugen como los vientos. Cuando le meten al oído sotanas y regimientos, pajarillos libertarios igual que los elementos, caramba y zamba la cosa que viva lo experimento.
Sabiéndose que es afrecho Y no hacen el sordo mudo Cuando se presente el hecho Caramba y zamba la cosa El código del derecho Me gustan los estudiantes Porque son la levadura El pan que saldrá del horno Con toda su sabrosura Para la boca del pobre Que come con Caramba y samba la cosa, viva la literatura. Me gustan los estudiantes que marchan sobre la ruina, con las banderas en alto, a toda la estudiantina. Son químicos y doctores, cirujanos y dentistas. Caramba y zamba la cosa, vivan los especialistas. Me gustan los estudiantes que con muy clara elocuencia a la bolsa negra sacra le bajo las indulgencias. Porque hasta cuando nos dura, señores, la penitencia. Caramba y zamba la cosa, que viva toda la ciencia. Caramba y zamba la cosa, que viva toda la ciencia.